Excellent. So thanks um, to, um, I guess, Allison and Miriam principally for um, inviting me to speak and uh, to all of you for your hospitality and uh, welcome. So I'm going to talk about one specific dimension of the House of Democracy, and it's uh, a dimension I guess I'm probably, among my expertise, this is one of the things I would be most expert on, so this is gender and democracy. Um, so an important dimension of theoretical work on the health of democracy focuses on equality and inequality in representation and puts considerable weight on the idea that democracy is incomplete or flawed when it privileges the political voices of some segments of the population over others. Now, of course, privilege and mar uh, marginalization can be structured according to various dimensions or cleavages, though, of course, the most common of these would be like race and ethnicity, language, faith, um, gender, class, region, age, and so on. So, of course, gender is, is one such cleavage, but it's certainly not the only one, which actually makes the health of democracy a bit more difficult to attain, right? Because one of the goals of democracy would then be to balance representation across all of these cleavages, in addition to all of the other tasks that democracy must perform as well. Much of my own work focuses on the ways in which gender structures access to political power, so that's really the, the, the focus of my comments here today. Um, political power has both formal and informal spheres, of course. It involves both state and non-state organizations and actors, and encompasses institutions, structures, behavior, and culture. Um, so how gender structures political power within and between states is a really big topic, and of course my thoughts will only cover very modest territory. Uh, my own work has tended to focus on state institutions, so uh, you know I'll fess up here that I, I guess I would describe myself as a sort of feminist institutionalist and specialist in political behavior uh, in the context of women's electoral and legislative representation. Some of my work, for example, focuses on the role of news media and political communications more generally in women's access to candidacies and legislative seats. Um, broadly, this work concludes that news media reflect and exaggerate harmful stereotypes about women and their place in politics, resulting in a decrease in both the supply of and demand for women candidates and leaders as a result. There is a large body of work on gender and state institutions related to parties, elections, legislatures, executives, and growing literatures on the judiciary and, and bureaucracy. In terms of political institutions, um, one of the sort of corners of, I guess, institutional analysis and political science where gender has been paid much less attention is federalism and intergovernmental relations, which I'll get to in a moment. So just to flag that there. So the literature I've been working in for a while now offers a pretty pessimistic view, actually, of how democracy is faring in terms of gender equality and access to power and government responsiveness. The political recruitment model breaks down election to public office into three separate selection stages. So first is the initial decision to run, second is securing a party's nomination as candidate, and third is getting elected by voters. At each of these stages, the literature is clear that there are institutional, structural, and cultural barriers that burden women as a group. So worryingly, evidence has emerged over the past decade or so that one of the strongest impediments to gender equality in electoral and legislative representation is a significant confidence and ambition gap between men and women. Women undervalue their own credentials and experiences, and they are thus less likely than men to consider political candidacy hampering the supply of women compared to men across democracies in the world. 
confidence and ambition gaps aren't natural or inevitable. Uh, many studies show that boys and girls have basically equal levels of interest in politics. This confidence and ambition gap develops in adolescence, just like other gender gaps that appear at this developmental stage, such as young women's lower interest in STEM fields, to give you an example. So what we're talking about here is a generalized turn away from historically male-dominated spheres, a pattern which points to the need for proactive intervention, I would argue, to ensure gender equal access to political power. Indeed, at this stage, removal of institutional barriers will likely be insufficient alone to generate growth in women's access to power, given the considerable cultural forces working from the very early stages of life to deter women's political ambition. So I promised you a moment ago, and I'm going to say a few words about gender um, and federalism and intergovernmental relations. So interestingly, um, as my research interests evolve and in my role as director of the Queen's Institute of Intergovernmental Relations, I've been turning my attention more and more to another set of political institutions, and this is federalism and intergovernmental relations. And it's not a set of institutions that is commonly raised when we're talking about women's descriptive and substantive representation. Um, and I hope that the comments I sort of provide in my last few minutes here will convince you that that's a problem. Stated plainly, this literature has dealt comparatively little with gender as a dimension of analysis, much less than literatures focused on other elements of democratic architecture, such as legislatures, executives, electoral systems, parties, etc. Part of the explanation, of course, is the territorial logic that underpins federalism in theory and in practice. Though goodness knows the, the same could be said of um, other political institutions, particularly as a result of using, for example, SNP electoral rules to elect members of uh, legislatures. Um, but in any case, I'll just confine myself, obviously, to federalism before I veer off too far into that territory. So federalism, of course, divides power vertically and does so largely for two reasons, both of which are sort of territorially, territorial dimensions. So to make governance easier in geographically large jurisdictions and to provide policy and administrative autonomy to territorially concentrated ethnocultural groups. Some federations, such as our own, have both feature, features reinforcing geography as the defining dimension of representation and governance. Now, one of the problems here is that gender is commonly conceptualized as unconnected to geography, as a distinctively non-territorial social cleavage. The electoral systems literature treats gender this way, for example. And in that context, I suppose that, that makes sense. And it is true uh, that there tends to be no physical segregation of gender groups across geography, making it, in some sense, among the most spatially diffuse of interests and identities. This isn't quite accurate, though, as we know, especially on the ground, right? And we know this very well in our own society. Um, Quebec women's experience of gender, politics, and society, to give an example, is inextricably linked to their ethnocultural and geographic locations. I think similar claims could be made for some indigenous women. So there is a territorial dimension to gender, or there can be in such cases, on account of the geographic concentration of intersectional racial and ethnic identity. So the federalism literature is not yet developed sufficiently to consider this intersection, particularly theoretically. Now, of course, there is literature on gender uh, and federalism, and some of the key players are people like Jill Vickers, Marion Sawyer, Melissa Hausman, Louise Chappelle, and others. And they've integrated insights and generated new hypotheses from um, 
important work in the field from people like Paul Pearson, Leipard, and others. So in other words, this work speaks to the central themes mm -hmm. in the federalism literature, redefining key concerns in the literature to test hypotheses about women's descriptive and substantive representation in the context of multi-level governance. So the work that most directly speaks to me um, analyzes the impact of federalism and intergovernmental relations on women's descriptive and substantive representation in formal institutions of power, pursuing questions like, first, what opportunities and constraints do multiple sites of policymaking offer for organized women? And second, how do multiple levels of government affect the state's ability to advance women's interests, particularly um, central governments, which is a key theme in the literature. So on the first question, we can imagine the multiplication of decision-making venues under federalism being both a blessing and a curse, and indeed mixed findings are what the gender and federalism literature reports. So in some circumstances, federalism multiple access points offers enhanced opportunities for policy influence and perhaps even venue shopping uh, as a result of expanding the political levers available for group interests, uh, influence. Multiple access points, however, can also hinder influence, imposing significant resource burdens on organized interests who must then lobby multiple jurisdictions inside a single state. So multiple access points can create multiple veto points, which can then be used to obstruct women's policy demands. So clearly, institutional design matters substantially, reflecting Pearson's observation that's the type of federalism that matters. And here I'll just wave my hands at the people who are going to talk about measurement. So, I mean, I suppose that's fundamentally your issue. Melissa Hausman's work comparing the United States with other Anglo-American democracies provides a really telling example. She argues compellingly that divided government combined with separation of powers and bicameralism in 51 jurisdictions significantly hampers gender reform in the United States. So this configuration fragments women's efforts and, and strains resources. The response by women has been to attempt to nationalize gender issues such as abortion and equal pay. However, better funded conservative political actors can use multiple veto points in the institutional configuration to uh, obstruct reform. So of course, this is, a, this is a real simplification of what happens in a very complex jurisdiction. But the example, I think, illustrates the gendering of the federalism literature and what it reveals about the impact of institutional design on this important dimension of democratic health. Stepping back, I think there's a lot of work to do, for there have been very few efforts as yet to formulate a generalized theory about the effects of federalism on organized women and on women's representation more generally. The same has also been true of theoretical work on intergovernmental relations, a branch of analysis in the study of multilevel governance. So in Canada, this aspect of our life as a federation seems more important now than ever. Since the election of the Trudeau Liberals in 2015, uh, we've seen what I would call, I guess, a revival of uh, federal-provincial relations after a decade of bilateralism and so-called open federalism under Harper. Moreover, now that the Quebec government uh, has expressed an explicit wish to engage in nationwide discussions on its status in the federation, including recognition of its national specificity, this opens the door once again, potentially, I suppose, to executive level talks on constitutional and non-constitutional options for reform. So it's a good time, I think, to remind ourselves that the style of closed door elite accommodation that's characterized our intergovernmental relations historically has not been all that conducive to the representation of women uh, and their policy interests. Indeed, looking at the matter, 
most simply, women have plainly just not been at the table, given barriers to leadership at the executive level. So of the 14 current first ministers, two of them are women. So Rachel Notley in Alberta and Kathleen Wynne in Ontario. And both are facing really fierce battles in their next bid for re-election. So this brings me back right to the beginning of my talk, to the bread and butter of my own research agenda, and to the observation that women's substantive representation is a lot less likely when women are not at the table. Anyway, why don't I end there, since I see the zero minute sign, and thanks for your attention.